I'm Tim Gombas, and this is Faith Improvised. It's a podcast where I can think out loud and talk with friends about things that interest me. Books, films, sports, music, culture, politics, the wonders and complexities of being Christian in this world, and my academic discipline, biblical studies. You're welcome to email me if you like at faithimprovised at gmail.com. In this episode, I finished talking about God's call of Israel and what that means for God's aim to reclaim the world for his glory. So I'm standing here in my study on a very gray, rainy West Michigan day, pretty typical this time of year in some ways. Um, the kind of day that reminds me that at this time of year, I just long to get out of town, uh, travel to places where there's a whole lot more sunshine than here. And that's uh, what's wonderful is that I have some trips coming up out West to see my daughter and some baseball in Arizona and um, some other places where there's a whole lot more sunshine than here. There was a uh, there was an ad in the local paper um, noting that in December in Grand Rapids, there were five minutes of sunshine because of where Grand Rapids is situated relative to Lake Michigan. We get the lake effect weather, and that means it's just gray, like for months. And um, it takes endurance. It does indeed take endurance. I'm just back from having uh, an absolute blast this weekend. Uh, my friend Don had his birthday uh, a few days ago, and so I spent the weekend with Don and Becky celebrating that. Uh, we were in Chicago for a couple of days, eating at some amazing restaurants and just otherwise having a blast. Um, watching some football, falling asleep on the couch, watching football, that sort of thing. On Saturday... Saturday morning, Becky scheduled us to go on this uh, this tour of of four gourmet donut shops in the city. It was a walking tour around the city for a couple of hours to kind of keep the metabolism going as we were pounding amazing donuts. And oh my goodness, I highly recommend it. It was so totally fun. Um, it began at Vault Donuts and uh, went to three other places and was just so cool. I have not had that many donuts in that concentrated a time. I don't even know when. I'd have to go back to like high school when stopping at uh, you know the Dunkin' Donuts drive-through was like a routine thing for me in those days. Um, that'll take a couple of days of recovery and a whole lot of walking to sort of get my body back into shape. But so worth it. Such a good time. Some memorable meals and uh, a lot of laughs. Um, Speaking of football, right now is um, the NFL football playoffs are going on. And uh, this last weekend, there were a couple of uh, really good games. And I probably will watch uh, the Buccaneers-Cowboys game tonight, even though I'm a little bit ambivalent. Uh, I've been quite ambivalent over the last 10 years or so watching football, um, especially in light of the um, the injury la uh, a few weeks ago, the life-threatening um, incident suffered by one of the players for the Buffalo Bills. Um, but that's just a something that was so uh, completely obvious to everyone watching. That's one of those crisis moments where everybody sort of sits up and takes notice that this sport is extremely violent um, with finely, finely tuned bodies uh, running at each other at high speed and having these collisions that just rattle the bones and just 
they, they ruin bodies. And um, after watching that uh, ESPN documentary several years ago about the shortness of football careers and, you know, the length of life that these men have to go on after that in bodies that are brutalized and with uh, financial situations that are awful, um, man, it's just hard to, it's, it's hard to watch and enjoy. Um, so anyway, I've got sort of an ambivalent relationship to pro football, but I don't know. Uh, especially after reading Ajoma Aluo's chapter on football in her book, uh, Mediocre, which is a brilliant book, recommended that a year or two ago on this here podcast. Uh, she has a chapter on the history of football and how it developed, which um, basically to keep to keep men, to keep young men prepared for war and to sort of um, nurture in them a, a brutality uh, that people sort of, there was the feeling that men were getting too soft if they weren't at war while they were in university training for a profession or whatever. And so football was developed um, to sort of train men in being brutal. And it has succeeded. Anyway, um, I've been bothered recently. This is just a rant about the pathetic character of journalism in general and um, sports journalism. It's so crazy. Um, I, I've seen this kind of headline recently, like on ESPN.com, where on a Monday morning after you know a Sunday filled with football, there will typically be an article with a headline that says something like, you know, top five overreactions from Sunday. You know, where where people draw conclusions about a certain player or a certain team's performance, whatever, and the story could sort of write itself. And what's interesting about that to me is that that is journalism about what people are saying about events. Like it's it's covering the chatter about events. So it's not reporting on events. It's it's like it's recording about what people are saying about events, which is just so ridiculous. And um, I was thinking of that again. I saw a headline. I don't know if this was in the New York Times or the Washington Post, uh, but there was an article about in and out and their sort of plans for expansion farther east. So this, those of you who are out west know about the burger chain um, that puts out glorious hamburgers and great chocolate shakes um, and above average fries. I think they get a bad rap. But anyway, um, in and out was, was uh, sort of a California-based burger chain and it's, it's expanded into Arizona, um, Nevada, Texas, other Western states. And um, they've got plans to expand further West, but the article was not about those plans. It was about what people are saying about the expansion. Like this is what like people are worried that in and out will sort of lose its character if it expands further West. Like it's a California thing. And when it goes to other States, that is sort of diminished. It loses its identity in some way. And people are are worried about that. Like In-N-Out fans are worried about that, which to me raises the question of how do you even identify who is an In-N-Out fan? Um, I mean, who is invested in the franchise beyond just sort of like enjoying their burgers and fries and shakes? 
Who cares what people think about the thing that is happening? Um, what I like to do is understand as well as I can what is happening and form my own opinion. I don't care what other people think. It doesn't matter. And that recalled, uh, so this is this is how my mind works. That recalled to me uh, Daniel Borston's discussion in his classic book that everyone should read. Every American should read this book called The Image, A Guide to Pseudo-Events in America, uh, written in the 1960s. But um, Daniel Borston was a, a historian taught for years at the University of Chicago. He was later the librarian of the Library of Congress, which um, seems like that's a pretty prestigious position. I don't know what he did there. I don't know if he made sure that the stamps uh, had enough ink on them. You know, when people checked out books and got stamped, I don't know. I'm sure that being the librarian of the Library of Congress is a bit more prestigious than that. At any rate, in his book, The Image, he has this discussion of um, what it means that a book is a bestseller. Like if, if a book advertises that it is a bestseller, that says nothing about the content of the book. And it says everything about like what people think about the book. Um, but it, it doesn't say like you'll enjoy the book or here's what the book is about or here's why it's relevant to you, which it's just so interesting. Daniel Borston uh, years ago had captured how it is that um, in American culture, there's just such a focus on popularity, but not a focus on like analyzing what the thing is itself, whether it's relevant or not whether you should have anything to do with it or not, whether you might enjoy this particular book or not. Um, and I think that, that that focus on popular opinion is, is so entirely pervasive and it's, in, it's completely irrelevant to me. Um, I've not really ever been interested in a thing that everyone is interested in. Um, I've not found, I, I, I have found that to be no kind of guide to me about whether or not I will enjoy uh, certain music, certain uh, events, certain films or books or whatever. Um, when there are people that I respect or whose thinking I respect or whose tastes I respect, uh, recommend something to me, typically something that um, I wouldn't have otherwise heard of. Um, that to me is helpful, but I don't, I simply don't care if a thing is popular or not. And um, I, I don't like at all um, the consideration brought into discussions of politics or culture where there's a focus on what people think about this. So-and-so made a statement, here's the reaction to it. And um, that sort of thing does not interest me at all. Anyway, sports talk should be a whole lot more interesting. It should be a, a whole lot more incisive, like analyze the game, analyze the plays, analyze the strategy. I think that there is plenty of scope for good sports journalism, just like there's plenty of scope for just good journalism uh, period about any topic um, without focusing on the reactions. Here's what people are saying. I don't care. There are, there is a lot of stupid comment. There's a lot of brainless and mindless reaction uh, to report on the reaction to events to me is something that I simply don't care about. Anyway, I don't read the articles that, have headlines like here are the top five overreactions to this last weekend. I don't know. People overreact. How does anybody even know what the overreactions are? Where do you register your overreaction? 
anyway, don't get it. Um, one of the things that I'm doing this year is, um, I've, I've thought about this for a long time. Um, my mind, just like anybody and everybody else's that's currently alive is, um, sort of turned into a pile of mush because of my smartphone, just like so many other people's. And um, I've taken off uh, social media and email and just a ton of stuff from my phone. And um, just trying to read a little bit more and trying to have my mind, um, sort of having the things that occupy my mind be a bit more disciplined and intentionally chosen, purposefully chosen. And along with that, um, I want to give my mind, I, I'm, I'm making the effort to sort of do a little bit more uh, memory, like committing things to memory. For years, I had memorized big chunks of scripture, which I'm, I'm glad I've done that. And um, it's a way to sort of discipline my mind and have it focused on something rather than um, having my mind just wander onto random things. Um, for a long time on my walks, I had a purposeful um, sort of thought process that I would go through. I would begin with my uh, gratitude list and then have a couple of different, you know, issues or whatever it was that I wanted to purposefully think through and to see if I could unpack all the factors that went into that, whether that was an opportunity, a challenge, a relational issue or whatever. So I'm, uh, um, a couple of months ago, my friend Steve sent me this poem and I sent it on to a couple of other friends that I know are going through something. And um, it's just, it's beautiful. And I've loved having my mind just sort of wander through this poem and have it have it sort of uh, reach into the far corners of my, my imagination. And so I decided to commit it to memory. And um, I was thinking that it is also really relevant to um, people that are on a journey of uh, deconstruction or reevaluation or reexamination or excavation of their faith and how how it is that that can be a very lonely process. I commented on that several episodes back and um, got some emails back about that, um, about how helpful that was just to recognize that that kind of a um, a journey, I that that word is just overused. I'm very conscious of it every time I use it. That, I'm just going to embrace it. That sort of journey or that sort of trek is a lonely one uh, because very often people uh, want their lives to be comfortable. And when there's someone else in their life that wants to re-examine everything and sort of pick up, lift up the hood on stuff and get under the skin of what's really going on and what they've inherited, um, that makes them uncomfortable because they want other people in their lives to not ask those difficult questions. Maybe they don't want to wrestle with those questions themselves, or they want all the people around them to just sort of agree on the shared reality uh, so that if somebody doesn't agree about it, um, that kind of threatens them. So there are just all kinds of factors relationally that go into um the hesitance that people have to really re-examine some of the fundamental things that you've inherited. But anyway, I thought I would commend this poem to you. It's by Mary Oliver, and it is actually called The Journey. And um, I would just highly commend it to you. 
read it, print it out like I have done. It's sitting here on my desk. It's the, I encounter it in the morning. I read through it. I've memorized about half of it so far. And I just, like on my morning uh, walk this morning, I just said it out loud, walking through the streets of Chicago with people staring at me as I waved my arms around and gave it emphasis as I um, tripped across different lines in it. But I'm going to read it because I just love, love this poem. One day you finally knew what to do. Sorry, doggone it. I've already messed it up. One day you finally knew what you had to do and began. Though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice. Though the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles. Mend my life, each, each voice cried. But you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do, though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations. Though their melancholy was terrible. It was already late enough and a wild night and the road full of fallen branches and stones. But little by little, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds. And there was a new voice, which you slowly recognized as your own, that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life you could save. Mary Oliver, she's amazing. Like I said, check it out. Um, that's going to be my memorization project uh, for the next weeks or so. And will be something that I rehearse to myself um, each morning to guide my day, to get my day started off right. So I'm talking about the big story of the Bible, and I've been talking for a couple episodes anyway about the place of biblical Israel in that story. And I say biblical Israel to sort of distinguish that from um, what we know as the nation state that is Israel um, that has been up and running since 1948, I think it was. Um, those are not the same entities, uh, but but biblical Israel has a has a seriously significant place uh in the whole big storyline a massively significant place in the whole big storyline um it's there that we sort of see what god's intentions are uh for really in many ways for humanity and, and his intentions to reclaim the nations for his glory and it's important to understand what's happening with biblical israel because in many ways they are something of a template or a precursor um as god's corporate people when the um, when the New Testament apostles reflect on what the what the church is supposed to be, um, so it is not the case when we put the whole big story together. It's not at all the case that at one time God had intentions to sort of establish uh, communal and corporate life on Earth in the Old Testament, but that's an idea that's relegated to the Old Testament. Um, with concerns for justice and economics and politics and agriculture and all the rest, um, but that's gone. And now it's the case that uh, God is simply concerned to have Jesus dwelling in people's hearts and to give them an eternal destination in the future. That is not the case. That is that is not at all the case. That's sort of a, a conception that I grew up with and was trained in. Um, but biblical Israel is sort of a template for what God wants from the church. 
corporate bodies of people um, performing and embodying on earth what God wants from his renewed humanity uh, with concern for uh, agriculture, with concern for economic justice, with concern for political justice, with concern for the poor and the outcast. And um, so when Jesus comes in the Gospels, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, um, he's calling people to a holistic mode of life that is basically based on Torah, basically based on um, everything that God wanted for Israel. Jesus is calling disciples to a holistic mode of life that involves all that stuff that we find uh, in the Old Testament. Very, God is very concerned about life on earth in communities. So Israel plays a massive, a massively important role in the biblical storyline. So it's important to understand that. Um, and I think I talked about this in my previous episode. That was a couple weeks ago. I don't remember what I said, really. Um, but God's call of Israel and his creation of this people and, and his intended mode of life with his people um, picks up on and just recapitulates and goes back to all of his intentions with humanity in Genesis 1 and 2. Everything that humanity sort of lost in Genesis 3 and beyond God is seeking to recover in Israel. So God wanted to um, inhabit his temple that is his entire creation uh, through humanity embodying his presence on earth. So humanity as God's image performing, uh, you know, bringing about the flourishing of creation would have been God. That's what God is and what God looks like. God would have dwelt effectively in his temple when humanity was imaging who he is and how he is on earth. And since uh, humanity had sided with chaos in Genesis 3 and beyond and then became agents of chaos, God's call of Israel is to reverse that and to recall his original intentions for humanity. And that would have looked like the creator God dwelling among Israel, dwelling in Israel, um, with the intention that his presence would sort of eventually pervade all of creation as the nations of the world were led to worship the one true God um, in consultation with Israel over time. That's what, um, I mean, Israel's calling as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation uh, that sums up that whole mission. So that's God's intent, to once again dwell with humanity and that's what he's doing with Israel. And that um, calls to mind all of the instructions in Torah, sort of the complex of um, you know, tabernacle worship and later temple worship, because you know, the reason why that is so kind of um, extensively and explicitly laid out, uh, the care that Israel would have had in approaching God and in dealing with God um, is meant to communicate that Encountering the one true creator God is not a flippant thing. It takes care and it takes, um, yeah, caution and care now that um, humanity is in a very different uh, situation post Genesis 3. Um, but don't, I want to just sort of, um, so in one sense, all that tabernacle instruction and all the instruction for sort of encountering God, which, which gets really extensive and kind of um, offensive to modern eyes and ears um, with the kind of people that were welcome 
to approach God and the kind of people that were uh, deemed unclean and all of that, that's, uh, there's a lot to unpack there that I'm not going to go into. Um, but I want to just see to it that, or, or encourage y'all, um, to not imagine that this was a burden, like, um, being, you know, Israel was saddled with all of this, um, ritual and cultic practice whereby, you know, it was like a, a burden to sort of encounter God. Keep in mind the great place of privilege that Israel occupied. Um, keep in mind that uh, being the people of God was not drudgery. Keep in mind the Jubilee system, where every seventh year they uh, Israel just partied and did whatever they wanted and did not or wasn't was not supposed to. They never really did this, but uh, the design of being Israel was to have a year off every seven years to so just do whatever they wanted, and God would have supplied their needs. He would have looked after them. And then every 49th and 50th year, there's two years from uh, released from work or the kind of activity that would bring about sustenance. And God guaranteed them national security. They had no reason to fear their neighbors who were fearsome. I mean, it's this pathetic little nation situated among these powerful empires. And if they had been faithful to the one true God, to the God of Israel, um, he would have guaranteed them national security. So don't imagine that being uh, biblical Israel was drudgery or a burden in any way. That's not the case. But Israel was supposed to be the national embodiment of God. They would have embodied God in their national way of life, the way that they cared for the earth, the way that they um, carried out economic justice and political justice, the way that they would have had a king that would have uh, was not supposed to lift himself up over his uh, country folk. All of that would have depicted what God is like. So if the nations of the world wondered, what is the God of Israel like? Uh, the design was they would look at the national patterns of life of Israel and they would see God. That's who God is. So the life of the nation manifested the character of God. And that's... Um, in many ways, that's the um, that's the design of um, having gods in the ancient world. The national mode of life of the nations um, was the embodiment of their god. So, if a nation has hierarchies, if it has injustice, if it has a king as the only one that matters and nobody else matters, um, that's what the deity is like there. Um, but Israel's God was very different. Israel's God is holy. He's, he's in a class by himself. There's nobody like the God of Israel. And that was supposed to be manifested in the way that Israel conducted his daily life and its national life. And by the way, that's what um, holiness is all about. Holiness is a uh, it's kind of a dirty word or a, a very misunderstood word. It doesn't have to do with kind of moral uh, pristineness or anything like that, or holier than thou. This kind of gets thrown around in, in, in a not great way. Holiness just means entirely different, completely different, completely different. Um, not the run-of-the-mill sort of thing, not the expected thing. And um, Israel was supposed to regard its God as holy, that is, they were not supposed to think 
about their God as being like the gods of the nations. He's entirely different. Uh, he's the one that um, reigns above the heavens. And he's the one, I believe it's Psalm 103, uh, who stoops low to lift up the face of the downtrodden. He's a God who has intense care and concern uh, for the marginalized, for the poor, for the needy, uh, for the orphan and the widow. And Israel was supposed to embody that concern. And so um, Israel was not supposed to think about the God of Israel in terms of the gods of the nations, because he's very different. And Israel was called to holiness, which again does not mean like pristine moral character can't have any fun. It's that Israel was supposed to be um, a nation that was not like the other nations. They did not have their economic practices. They did not have their political practices. Um, so like right away when Israel calls for having a king because they want to be like the nations, um, that is already a pretty serious and severe surrender of their national identity. But that's what holiness is all about. We are a, a nation that conducts itself completely differently than the nations. Economically, politically, socially, uh, with regard to how we um, have our calendar, all the rest. So um, holiness is not wrapped up with personal piety uh, or you know not having any fun or always being sober-minded. In fact, holiness entailed the Jubilee system. Take a year and just party. Take a year and explore and go on hikes and just do whatever you want. Have fun. Enjoy this. Enjoy being Israel because it's pretty great. Um, along with all of that, uh, I've already mentioned this a little bit, but God gives to Israel the gift of Torah. That is the five books of Moses. That is the law. It's Israel's history and Israel's instruction. And this also was not a burden. And I've touched on this in previous episodes and at random times. It's really unfortunate that the way that most um, Christians and most Christian traditions regard the Old Testament, you sort of have to furrow your brow when you say that, the Old Testament. It's really unfortunate that we see it as sort of a legalistic document or a harsh document, uh, and that the God of the Old Testament is harsh and vindictive and all the rest. It's really, really unfortunate. Um, so many of the, I'll just use the term, so many of the laws in the Mosaic law um, are not sort of meant to be followed strictly. So many of the laws in the Mosaic law are exemplary. Like these are the kinds of things that you should be doing to your neighbor. This is these are the kinds of things that embody neighbor love. It's not that all of the laws were meant to be quote unquote fulfilled or that the Mosaic law entailed perfect obedience, like you had to do them all and never fail. Um, Torah was was instruction, is the better translation than law. It's instruction. God had liberated Israel, brought them out. Uh, of being slaves and establish them in the land and then gives them instruction for how they can inhabit his love, how they can enjoy this reality of being biblical Israel. Um, but like I said, so many of the laws are exemplary. Like um, if your neighbor, if you see your neighbor's ox get out of its pen, don't just ignore it. 
head over to your neighbor's house and offer to help to get the ox back in its pen. That's the, that's the sort of thing that you should be doing. You should be having concern and care for your neighbor. Um, they had flat roofs. So put a railing around your roof because you want to have your neighbors over. You want to have your family over and enjoy, you know, have a party. Um, but if there are little kids who could potentially fall off the roof, you know, put a railing around it so that that doesn't happen. Look out for each other. Care about each other. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's right out of Leviticus. Jesus is just quoting Leviticus when he um, sums up the law in one of his conversations. So the whole notion of Torah being this legalistic arrangement with all of these harsh laws that needed to be fulfilled, um, that's a really unfortunate Christian imposition um, of a view that I think it comes from just wanting to see the New Testament as superior in some way. Like this, like Jesus and the New Testament instruction have to be an improvement on what went before. So let's make what went before as dark and dastardly as possible, this arrangement between God and humanity that you surely don't want to be part of because it was hard and legalistic and filled with uh, dead ritual and all of the rest. Um, that's not at all the case. Um, Torah laid out calendar. It laid out a series of festivals and celebrations. Um, it's, it lays out a way of life that, uh, would have been a joy and delight to be part of. Um, yeah. Whenever I think about that, about ritual and the place of ritual, um, it's really unfortunate that certainly in American Christianity, there's this high value placed on uh, spontaneity. So anything having to do with ritual um, just strikes so many American Christians. Uh, we just have this allergic reaction, like, oh, that's, that's ritual. Um, I think that ignores many things. It ignores how it is that uh, the form of Christianity that many folks inhabit is actually filled with ritual. Like, the Sunday morning order of whatever the time is that we spend together, even in non-liturgical contexts, has a ritual. There's an order of events that we all expect. Um, that's ritual. And there are rituals that we enjoy in our lives, like um, how much have you enjoyed the ritual that takes place in mid to late November coming into December of like putting up decorations around the house and putting on certain kinds of music um, we don't complain that this is just dead ritual, but to sort of capture the holiday spirit, we go through these rituals that we actually love or when we have holidays or um, Sunday afternoons in the fall for many folks, you know, um, getting people together, organizing food and sitting down to watch football. These are things that we enjoy. And in many ways, uh, we ought to be thinking about the rituals that God gifted to Israel in Torah in the same way. These were the kinds of things that they participated in uh, to bring out just the richness of community life and to celebrate their national identity as the people of God. Um, so Torah has in it history, like this is who you are, this is where you all come from. Torah also has in it instruction um, for how to rotate crops, how to... Um, execute a an economic system um 
justice for when you know crimes are committed and how people can be restored to community. It lays out an entire way of life for all of that. Also has um, pretty extensive instructions for care for animals. It gets pretty specific, which um, is really interesting um, to think about the kinds of things that God, the God of Israel, is concerned about. <clears throat> a lot of um, a lot of instruction for how to uh, relate to the aliens who are in the land. That is, um, there were people living in uh, in biblical Israel in the land who were non-Israelites. How do how does Israel relate to them? Well, there's plenty of instruction there. Treat them with justice. Treat them with care. Um, if any of those are treated by you people, Israel, my people, if you treat them so badly that they cry out for justice, I will hear them and I will bring about punishment on you. So um, pretty interesting. But Torah was not a burden. Torah was a gift. In fact, uh, the response of Moses uh, to receiving this um, in Deuteronomy is to say on behalf of Israel, what nation has been so blessed as we have to have received this great gift, this instruction. So Israel is set up to um, enjoy being the people of God. Their identity as the people of the God of Israel was not a burden, but a, a gift, a delight. Um, <clears throat> one of the interesting questions, I think, or, or something that is very interesting as you think about the, the vocation that the creator God gave to the first humans in Genesis 1 and 2, and tie that into uh, what happens with Israel, and then tying that into so many of the things that are going on in the New Testament. Um, one thing that I've been struck by is that God gives to the first humans in Genesis 1 and 2 this commission to bring forth creation's flourishing, to fill the earth, to multiply, and to have uh, dominion over the earth. And that is uh, to sort of see to it that creation flourishes as fully as possible. That's very broad. And it's interesting that it seems to me that the way that humanity could have carried that out was very open-ended, very open-ended. What are they going to do? What projects are they going to pursue? And what God wanted for the first humans was to figure it out, figure it out, talk to one another, be creative, try some things. Maybe some things don't work. Try other things. And over time, they would have figured out how this all was going to work. And what's interesting is that with Israel, God gives them this commission to be a light to the nations, a royal priesthood, and which would have entailed performing for the nations that surrounded them what the God of Israel was like and what it was like to be alive in God's world as if God is reigning over it. That was the role of Israel with regard to the surrounding nations. And there's a sense in which they, they were called uh, to over, I mean, over many generations to train the nations of the world in being the nations of the world as if the one true creator God is really king over it. So bringing the nations of the world into obedience to the one true creator God who is the God of Israel. And in thinking about that, there's, it's interesting that there are like no discussions about how that should look. There's only a negative command. That is, don't make treaties. There's the, the exhortation not to intermarry. 
um, which in some ways had to do with um, the purity of the national identity, um, not not strictly speaking so that you know the, the nations are impure, Israel's pure, but just to sort of have a cohesive national identity and um, but also intermarriage had to do with treaty making. That's how you made treaties in the ancient world and the understanding was, you know, cousins aren't going to kill each other. They're not going to go to war with each other. Um, so they're not supposed to make treaties. But beyond that, this project is open-ended. And just like with the first human pair, Israel would have had to figure out how to do that. Like, how do we do this? How do, how do we carry out this project? They had to figure it out. Figure it out. That task would have entailed great humility. Like, they would have had to talk to each other. They would have had to, I don't know, set up a council. We're, we're going to figure this out. Let's, let's, um, that would have entailed hospitality to the nations. Let's sit down and have meals. Let's sit down and start a conversation. We want to help you understand uh, what it's like to be in the world as if the one true creator God is really king over it. That would have been, um, that would have been a fearful enterprise. Like, how's that going to be received? So th that would have taken intense creativity over a long period of time with some trial and error, just like with the first humans. They would have had to figure it out. And um, I think this, this could have looked, I mean, this could have looked very differently from generation to generation. But that is the task um, that God sets for Israel. And what I think is interesting is that if you just trace through that single line of thought, it's really interesting um, to then read the end of Luke chapter 2, where um, Jesus' parents, excuse me, throat's dry, so I'm drinking water. Jesus' parents bring him to the temple when he's 12 years old, and um, he goes missing for a couple days. And he's there in the temple having discussion and asking questions of the teachers of Torah. And um, what I think is happening there is that here's 12-year-old Jesus, who finally gets to go to Jerusalem. And after 12 years of trying to think through, I mean, his mother would have told him that he's you know this special character and that he has a special role to play in God's unfolding plan with his people. Um I'm sure that Jesus wondered over time, like, how do I do this? What, what's the first thing I do? When do I come into my own? When do I actually pick up this role and start doing stuff with it? I imagine that he would have had nothing but questions about what this was or how it looked. There's no template for being the Messiah. Um, and now that he has the chance to be in Jerusalem and talking with the people who would know, at least that's kind of how he imagines things, I imagine he's asking questions about all of that. And as he's doing that, he's fulfilling what it is to be truly human, to figure it out, to have this role to play, um, but also be saddled with some pretty intense lack of clarity as far as how it goes. And he's asking questions. He's figuring it out. That's what it means to be truly human in God's good world. And um, so anyway, if you have um, a lack of clarity for yourself, I think that that whole line of thought, I think is really, um, to me, it's kind of comforting because I know that for so many people, for so many Christian people, um, 
especially for American evangelicals, what it a lack of clarity about sort of our life direction makes us feel really bad. It makes us feel like we're failures. Um, when, when we try to kind of figure things out, or if we have questions about how this all should look or how it should work, or even like my um, vocational direction, if I could use that term, um, like what, what kind of job should I be looking for? What kind of um, profession should I go into? Uh, should I make this move? Uh, should I take this job? Should I marry this person? You know, we come across these big decisions. And I think that so much of life in American Christianity is presented to us um, as if we should be able to just apply a certain formula and um, everything should make sense. Or like we should expect to hear from God and he's going to tell us what to do. Um, but that's that's just not how things are presented in Scripture even for the first humans, even for Israel, even for Jesus, they needed to figure it out. They needed to ask questions, engage in conversation with other people, uh, search it out, trial and error, try some things, try some other things. Um, there's not that sort of immediate clarity that just makes everything make sense and eliminates all the questions. I think that's a very unrealistic way of viewing things and that's not necessarily a biblically faithful way of viewing things either. So anyway, going back to Israel, Israel would have needed to figure out how this was going to look for them. Unfortunately, as the story goes, just like the first human pair, biblical Israel failed. They did not live out their vocation as uh, a light to the nations, as a kingdom of priests. They uh, fell into disobedience and idolatry. Um, that is the worship of the gods of other nations, and they were unfaithful to the God of Israel. Now, um, what's interesting, I think idolatry, the idolatry of biblical Israel is more complex than simply like they turned away to worship the gods of other nations. Israel, um, for the most part, always worshipped the God of Israel, but just sort of ended up blending that worship with the worship of the gods of other nations. They did everything that they were supposed to not do, like making treaties uh, through intermarriage uh, with other nations, because it was a fearful prospect. It was a fearful thing um, to be situated there in the middle of all these massive empires and powerful nations. And it just made more sense to make treaties and to sort of guarantee uh, the outcome of national security. And that that is one of the concerns. That's one of the impulses that drives all idolatry, the search for guaranteed outcomes. God promised, the God of Israel promised them national security if they were faithful. But, oh, man, those nations are powerful. If we just make treaties with them, then we'll know that we've got national security. Um, so that, that quest for guaranteed outcomes is one of the concerns that lies at the heart of idolatry. And I think that's a pregnant notion very rich consideration for examining idolatries that um, that consume us in our culture and in, in Christian culture and in our lives today. The quest for guaranteed outcomes. I want assurance that my kids are going to turn out okay. I want assurance that I'm going to have my future provided for, all that kind of stuff. That leads us to a variety of idolatries. And also, keep in mind that there's a direct connection 
between like horizontally and vertically. Like horizontally, if we think about um, the way of life that biblical Israel was called to carry out economic justice, uh, political justice, social justice, uh, to care for the earth, to care for animals, that whole horizontal way of life was their vertical relationship with their God. Carrying out that way of life was the way that they worshiped God. That was their worship. Worship is not something that they did one day a week. Worship was an entire mode of life. When they embodied uh, Torah, that would have been their worship. That would have been the worship of the one true God. Um, and so there's a direct connection as well between a corrupt horizontal way of life and the worship of the gods of other nations. Because the gods of other nations didn't care about um, emerging hierarchies. When there was a social class in Israel that developed that uh, looked down on the poor and the needy and did not care for the orphan and the widow, that is no concern to the gods of the nations. And so it was a corrupt form of life that Israel engaged in that was their worship of the gods of other nations. So when you read through the biblical prophets, when they are crying out against Israel, um, there are rebukes about following the gods of other nations, and there are rebukes about the cultivation of injustice, the toleration of injustice. Um, I mean, and it's really threatening, really threatening to read these um, biblical books. If you if you have a, a very comfortable mode of life, like I do, um, you know, when Isaiah cries out against people putting additions onto their houses when someone down the street is going hungry. Ugh, I mean, that's like, it's hard to read the biblical prophets and then turn to look at the, the way of life that, that at least for me, it's uncomfortable that I've been, that I've inherited and that I've been um, trained in, in that I've been trained to regard as normal. Um, because it's largely my training in a system that is highly unjust and that would offend, um, that offends the ways of the God of Israel. I mean, goodness, how many of us have made home improvements while people in our cities are homeless and going hungry. So, um, there is a, there is a, um, an intense concern on the part of God in Torah and then the biblical prophets, because the biblical prophets are just calling Israel back to Torah. That's really all they're doing. And they're applying, they're preachers of Torah uh, to Israel, reminding them of the way of life that God has called them to. Um, shoot, I had a point there. Oh, doggone it. Oh, I was going to say there's an intense concern in the prophets um, for social justice, for care for the poor and the orphan and the widow. And because Israel did not listen to their prophets over time, uh, the prophets announced God's judgment on Israel by sending them into exile, just like God exiled the first humans by sending them out of the garden into um, a godless world. God then ejects Israel and Judah from the land and sends them into sends them among the nations. They're they're now again a captive people. And it's instructive to read through the prophets to see all of the reasons why God sends them into exile. It's because they have not practiced Torah. That is, they have not been concerned about the poor, the orphan, and the widow. 
They have mistreated people in socially vulnerable positions. They've not cared for animals. They have not cared for the land. They did not give the land its rest. They were supposed to uh, give the land a jubilee and not farm it for an entire year so that the land wouldn't uh, be worn out. Um, think about the way that um, you know topsoil is being depleted in the U.S. I mean, we are wearing out the land with our farming practices, which is just, I mean, God is highly and intensely concerned about that if you read through Torah and the prophets. But these are all the reasons why God sends them into exile, because the land is worn out, because the poor, the orphan, and the widow are being mistreated, because economic practices are unjust, people are exploiting one another, they're charging interest on interpersonal loans that they give. Um, all of these reasons are reasons why God sends them into exile. And biblical Israel and Judah, again, just like the first humans, just like Israel and later Jesus, they have to wrestle with the big question. How do you be Israel if you no longer are connected to the temple and if you are no longer in the land? Like, how do you follow Torah? How do you worship, you know, li live holistic lives that are the worship of the one true God if you're not in the land anymore? Because their, their way of life of being uh, Israel being worshipers of the one true God entailed an entire way of life that is now lost to them. So how does that look? How do you maintain your identity um, in a radically different place? Again, they would have had to figure that out um, because God hasn't left them. He's not abandoned them. He makes promises to them and he's going to be with them. But this is a, this is a stage of being Israel that takes discernment takes improvisation, um, embodying the ways of the one true God in a very different place, um, in a very different situation. Uh, Jeremiah helps them with this in some way. He gives them the instruction of just seek the peace of the city, um, buy homes, plant gardens, which means you're, you know, give your children in marriage because you're going to be here for a while. So cultivate a peaceful way of life where you're contributing to the shalom of the city that you're in and hunker down. And in the meantime, um, God not only sends them into exile, but he lets them know that he's not forgotten about them. He makes loads of promises to them. He's going to return. Um, he's going to bring them back into the land. He's going to reconstitute them as his people. And they are once again going to take up that role of being his people in the world um, because he's going to return himself and dwell among them and put a spirit in each of them. So um, when God's people are in exile, they're given loads of promises, and those are the promises that the New Testament authors pick up on as they seek to interpret scripturally what has happened with this new move that God has made in Jesus. But all that is to come. So when we think about um, terms like salvation, the way that... That term um, is loaded with meaning coming out of the Old Testament. Salvation is this holistic restoration of every area of life. Um, your family's real estate back, communal flourishing, liberation from oppression, economic justice, social justice, God's order of shalom and justice being embodied by God's entire people. Um, that's what salvation looks like. So when 
when um, Jesus is talking about salvation um, in his arrival, that's what he's getting at. He's not talking about God taking up residence in hearts and offering people an eternal destination after death. He's talking about the life of God embodied here and now on earth corporately. And that's what um, the people of God are waiting for because they've got these promises kind of hanging out there. So I'm going to park it right there. Israel in exile and in expectation. Then there's a long period before the arrival of Jesus on the scene, but I'll pick up the story there next episode. As I look outside, it is not necessarily the most wonderful weather, but I'm going to find a good way to enjoy it by enjoying some some fish tacos, maybe one al pastor, and uh, enjoying some football tonight. It's a beautiful day. Don't let it get away. Mm-hmm.